0: I'll be you. I'll Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith the Podcast. I'm going to share with you a message I've simply entitled, Succeeding in Satan's City. Succeeding in satan's city in revelation chapter 2 and verse number 12 and we're going to come back to that passage many times today but we're going to start with that first verse revelation 2 and 12. the scripture says and to the angel of the church in pergamos write these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword Now, if you have a Bible that's red letter edition, you know that red letters means Jesus is talking. And these are red letter words. To the angel of the church in Pergamos. I want to begin today and in this passage by reminding us or pointing out there is a church in Pergamos. There's disciples in Pergamos there are Jesus followers in Pergamos God is working in Pergamos why is there a church in Pergamos well it's really not rocket science there's a church there because disciples of Jesus obeyed his great Commission because they heard and reacted to Jesus when he said go therefore and make disciples of Of all nations he said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature there's a church in Pergamos because disciples obeyed and they went they did it intentionally they did it on purpose and they are living within their God directed purpose there was a church in Pergamos This week, I finished uh, an amazing book entitled Restoring Love. In the book, the author, a woman by the name of Tina Royer, she explains a visit that she and her husband made for a, a, a family function in Las Vegas. And she compares that city to her hometown, a place called Del Paso Heights. And she writes this, ours is a neighborhood plagued by drug abuse and all the struggles that go along with it, poverty, violence, prostitution, and neglect. It was common for cars to be broken into during a church service. We weren't surprised to see piles of trash strewn about in front of the building, even a person experiencing homelessness camped out in one of the doorways with heroin needles nearby. That ceased to shock us. So the darkness of Vegas was not surprising to either of us, she writes. She said, it wasn't the type of sin that bothered us. It was the sheer magnitude of it. There weren't just A couple of scantily clad women strutting around making eyes at passers-by there were dozens of them stripped of any sense of modesty they might once have had Del Paso Heights was bad but Vegas was on a whole different level here in Vegas she writes sin was prevalent yes it was rampant at home but here in Vegas it was celebrated Back home the sin still reeked of disgrace, disgrace. It was dirty and felt seedy. But here in Las Vegas the sin was decorated. It was made to look beautiful. It was stripped of its shame. Back home the prostitute looked tired and empty, embarrassed. But here She was brazen and proud. Back home, the bars were dingy and dark, and they smelled musty like the sweat of tired men. But here, the drunks sat in comfy chairs at slot machines with bright lights and cartoon-like sounds all around. Back home, sin was bondage and darkness, but in Vegas, sin was king. A city where sin is king. You know, each of us may have opinions about a variety of cities we've visited, and perhaps there are many cities in today's world that we might describe similarly. Maybe Berlin or, or Tokyo or or Rio de Janeiro, or Sydney, or or maybe up the street in Vancouver, or London, or, or Amsterdam, New Orleans, Los Angeles, maybe, maybe even our beloved Seattle. You know, the list could go on and on where by description, by our observation, by understanding, some would say cities where sin is on the throne Pergamos was located on a sharp rugged hill that rose about a thousand feet above the surrounding plain There were public buildings that were built on terraces on that steep hillside and all along the hillside There were multiple temples that were part of the Acropolis Pergamos was one of the most beautiful cities in its time. It was a significant city. They had a fortified wall. There were gates. There were towers. There was a a citadel. There were palaces. There were a water system and baths and storage buildings and theater and library and gymnasium. The city had numerous temples that were dedicated to Greek deities as well as Egyptian deities. The temple, for instance, to Athena, victory bearer, might have been the most important religious site for the city of Pergamus. Kings accredited Athena for their military victories and named her the city's patron goddess. The sanctuary of Zeus was a close second in significance. The great altar they had there that honored Zeus would have been the most visible monument when people were approaching the city. There was a temple of Dionysius, patron god of arts and theater, and is still among the best-preserved ruins of ancient Pergamus. They had there what they called the a gymnasium. It was one of the most impressive buildings in that city. Athletic activities were held in that gymnasium. Discus, javelin throwing, jumping, wrestling, boxing, weightlifting, ball playing. On the hillside of the great Acropolis, this steeping area, there was a Greek theater where there were 80 rows of seats carved into the mountainside. It could accommodate up to 10,000 spectators. The amphitheater was a site of gladiatorial games and nautical reenactments, and it was also the site where some second-century Christians were martyred. Here's what Jesus said about Pergamos, Revelation 2 and verse 13. Jesus said of Pergamos, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not Deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. One translation says, in Satan's city. The church in Pergamos was probably started by the Apostle Paul. He spent three years in nearby Ephesus and it's very likely that while he was in Ephesus he saw the need to reach into Pergamus with the gospel of Jesus Christ he saw a city worth reaching he wanted to establish a group of disciples there a church and so along with the church and along with the disciples Jesus said this Satan lives there as well Satan Jesus informed the church where you're living Satan dwells where you work and shop Satan inhabits where you exist Satan exists in fact he tells them Satan has a throne in your city Satan is Comfortable and relaxed in your city Satan has established power and Authority in your city And I want us to recognize this fact today in that light in that understanding Jesus does not say you ought to leave there. No, Jesus gives no instruction for disciples to abandon Pergamus. He gives no guidance for leaders or for the church to retreat and head out to a safer location. You need to leave that sinful place. You need to get out of Satan's city. You need to find a place where more people think and act and vote like you. Jesus never says that. There's no direction by Christ to isolate or shrink back. There's no command for him or them to run and hide. Whether that's geographically running, socially running, or intellectually running, Jesus gave no direction to disengage from the city of Pergamos. Why not, preacher? I tell you why, because until Jesus returns again to rapture his church to glory, until he splits heaven open and sets his feet again on this planet, the great Commission still stands. There's no unless in the Great Commission. Jesus didn't say, Go and make disciples unless things get difficult. Jesus didn't say, Go and teach people my salvation unless the place is really sinful. lord of glory doesn't abandon places because his power doesn't work anymore the transforming power of jesus christ still overcomes all sin there's no vice there's no habit there's no depravity there's no perversion that's beyond the grace and the power of Jesus Christ and there never will be he is supreme he is the Lord of all instead we find in scripture there are times When the Lord abandons a place. But He does it when His patience has run out, not when our courage has run out. The Lord leaves when He determines they've had enough time to follow me, they've consistently and continually turned their backs. And now I will leave them to their own destruction. The great flood wasn't a result of the Lord's incompetence or impotence, but because humanity had been given centuries to respond, but continually denied Him. Even then, it wasn't Noah who said, All right, I've preached enough. It wasn't Noah who said... All right, let the rains begin and the waters to come forth from the earth. Noah didn't make that decision. The Lord of glory determined when his patience was finally exhausted. Sodom and Gomorrah weren't abandoned and destroyed because Abraham determined now is the time. In fact, it was Abraham who begged the Lord, give me a little more time, a little more opportunity to see if there's some who will follow you but the lord had had enough and he and he alone determines when it's time to end salvation possibilities and when jesus christ hear me today when he physically returns to earth he and only he determines when He made it clear, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Only the Lord knows when the world has had enough opportunity. Only the Lord knows when the gospel has been preached to every creature around the world. He'll make the decision. He decides when enough is enough. Until then, it's the great commission for every disciple go into all the world and preach the gospel it's not any saint's place at any time to declare any city beyond the saving of Jesus Christ Luke chapter 6 verse 27 Jesus said but I say to you who hear love your enemies run from those who hate you no no it doesn't say that Do good to those who hate you. Run from those who curse you. No. Next verse says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. I've had it with them. Enough's enough. I'm finished with them. 37, Jesus said, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. There's no words of abandon there. And you know what? When you and I struggle with the direction of Jesus, when we see these directions as being a little challenging or tough, again, let's listen to Jesus' words. In Matthew 11 and verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. A struggle is expected. And knowing that, we listen to his words in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we need to remember the writings of the Apostle John in 1 John 4.4. 4. You are of God little children and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Can I I just remind the church today when things are tough in Pergamon Disciples don't abandon the city. Rather, we turn to the Holy Spirit who is greater than Satan. We surrender to the power of the Holy One. And until He returns, we are His emissaries, empowered by His Spirit to overcome. We could read many more verses, but I think we've read enough to see clearly Jesus has a distinct purpose for his church. It's pretty clear that he's provided power for our success. Yet Jesus also recognizes it's not always easy. And in Pergamos, in particular, There are some hurdles. There are some things that y'all ought to address. You ought to pay attention to. You ought to be cautious about. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, here's what Jesus said. I've got a few things against you. These are things he's recognized that are in the city of Pergamos. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Those doctrines and stumbling blocks began with Balaam and were continued in that time by the Nicolaitans and they existed in Pergamus. Pergamus, as you heard, many temples, many gods, Greek and Egyptian, they worship multiple things. So Christians in that city were under constant pressure to compromise their one God convictions. In order to gain a prosperous life and better social status, the city Would require them to compromise their serving of God and God alone. In Satan's city, in that umbrella environment of that many gods and anything goes, Jesus eyed two obstacles that are most threatening. They extend from the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet. You can read about him in Numbers chapter 22. He wanted to curse God's people, but the Lord prevented him from doing that. And so Balaam developed a crafty means to slow down God's people, to deceive and sidetrack and misdirect. He, He was out to hinder and deter, to trip up. Balaam was into stumbling blocks. You're aware as well as I am that there's lots of people today that are are really concerned about their diets, their food intake. Vegans, pescatarians, vegetarians, you got people that are asking questions, how many calories are in that? How many grams of sugar are in that? How many grams of fat? Are in... Does it contain MSG? They're investigating their food. Does it have gluten? People are concerned about their, their physical food. Now, according to Jesus, disciples in Satan's city need to be concerned, must be concerned about their spiritual food. You see, in Pergamos, disciples stumbled when they committed Adam's sin. Adam ate the fruit was handed to him by Eve. She knew the fruit source. Adam didn't. But he ate it Adam's sin was willful ignorance Adam didn't ask enough questions about his food source he wasn't concerned about anything that might be underlying or around or a purpose Adam was undiscerning about what he consumed In Pergamos, there are are many invitations to enjoy the food. The food appears appetizing. Looks like prime cuts. The food's tasty, enticing, enjoyable. It's to be desired. But it may be food that's sacrificed to idols. What idol? Well, there's a bunch of them. Lots of temples, Greek gods, Egyptian gods, all manner of gods. They're located casually and conveniently near all the places that you're going anyway. Disciples in Pergamos weren't outright worshiping idols. They weren't going to those temples, but they allowed themselves to be associated with those idols by consuming the idols' byproducts. They proclaimed loyalty to the letter, but they satisfied their appetites through idol offerings. You know, in Pergamos, there's danger in reducing the kingdom of God to just black and white codes, ignoring the spirit of the Lord's direction, the intent and purpose for His instruction. For you and I today, practically, it's just so hard to imagine this being an issue when we go to the grocery store. When I pick up a packet of chicken thighs, boneless, skinless, or with bone and skin, it doesn't even cross my mind, I wonder if this was part of an idle ritual. Well, the FDIA creates guidelines and is supposed to be supporting those it's not like we have to think that way so so what does this warning what does this mean to us i offer today and particularly in our consumer culture this warning means we should be discerning of the things that we consume spiritually We're able in this day and age to consume all manner of media on all manner of devices. In every place, in every location, in every situation, it's anything you can think of or imagine to be promoted and propelled is just in our pockets or pocketbooks in our cell phones. But to succeed in Pergamus, we cannot fall prey to Adam's sin. We need to ask questions about our consumption. Can I, I get a little nosy and maybe step on some toes? Mom and dad, please be discerning of what's being consumed in your household, pay attention. To what's being consumed a fragile impressionable minds we need to ask what ingredients are in this food we need to ask about our consumption who does this exalt what practices does this glorify when i purchase and consume this food who's directly benefiting from that what kind of values am i supporting by consuming this when eating this what causes am i encouraging here in Pergamus? what tree does this fruit really come from am i as concerned perhaps this question am i as concerned for my spiritual diet as i am for my Physical diet. You see, succeeding in Satan's city requires spiritual discernment. Jesus warned us about that. The other hindrance Jesus identifies is practicing sexual immorality. Here's the big question. When is sex immoral? The answer to that question depends on one source of truth. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to surrender and submit to him and depend on his word. Scripture is our source for truth. I want to follow him, know how to follow him, know what pleases him. Here's where I get those definitions. And so followers of Jesus, people who surrender to that, we recognize there are two genders, male and female. Disciples of Christ accept that moral sex is between a married man and woman. For those surrendered to Jesus then, sex outside of those parameters is immoral. Now. Let me ask you this, why is it that directly and calmly stating these definitions causes many to bristle? In Pergamos, truth isn't solely derived from the word of God. In Satan's city, there are many gods, there are many temples, there are many definitions of what might be true. In Pergamos, popular opinion rules the day. And since popular opinion changes over time, so also does the city's definition of truth. And so, what is increasingly accepted and promoted today as sexually moral was. Not considered so as as little as 10 years ago. Certainly not 20 or 40 years ago. So as public opinion keeps moving, so does the definition of what is moral sexually. And as any society increasingly denies the word of God and embraces mere human thought, sexual moral boundaries will continue to vacillate so jesus warned the church in pergamos that committing sexual immorality is a stumbling block it's a deterrent to discipling success sexual immorality can trip up jesus followers and so any who would live in a city that they would consider A Satan's city as where he has power and authority and a throne uh, to successfully live as disciples sincerely we must ask who defines my morality what is my source when it comes to sexuality why do I believe what I believe where do my beliefs originate how were they established how are they influenced? You see, success in Pergamus requires steering clear of sexual immorality as defined by the Word of God. You know, even after Jesus recognizes these unique challenges of discipleship in Satan's city, I'll, I'll remind us again, there was a church in Pergamos. In light of that, what might seem challenging or, or require great thoughtfulness and discernment and determination, in light of that, regardless of those challenges, disciples successfully followed Jesus in Pergamus. There was a church there. There were people serving God willingly. There were people overcoming the problems, and they did so by following what Jesus pointed out. Look back again at verse number 13 in Revelation 2. The Bible says this, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Perhaps it seems simplistic, but it simply states this. Disciples succeeded being faithfully committed to Jesus. They succeeded because they would not quit. They succeeded because they would not give Uh, They succeeded because they refused to fall to the worship of all the other temples and all the other gods. They, They refused to surrender to those things. They succeeded by their commitment. Was it a tough environment? Yeah. Was there the threat of personal harm? Absolutely. But rather than run or succumb, faithful disciples held fast. I was rolling through this section and preparing and finishing up this message in the last 24 hours or so. And I was reminded of a text that I received on Monday. Monday, during a time of prayer, the Spirit of the Lord powerfully moved upon my mom. She is a kingdom pillar. She was so moved that she sent this prophetic word to her family. Here's what it said. There is power in holding on. It is where our power comes from. No trial, no test, no heartache can win when we still hold on and walk faithful to all of God's word. There is power in holding on. God sees us, sends his angels to anoint, protect, provide, to heal, to do all that we need each and every day because there is power in the ones that hold on. Preacher, how can you define that as a prophetic word of God? I'll tell you how. It agrees with Scripture. It's in line with what Jesus said. I see you in Pergamos. You never denied me, and you held on to my faith. Success. Success. Follows the faithful. And the amazing grace, this is something just so profound about God. The amazing grace of God provides hope for us even when our hold on faith slips. (laughs) While we all want to be perfect, None of us are. And we all desire to be strong 24-7, 365. None of us are 100%. So to those who happen to get hindered by Balaam's trickery, look what Jesus said in in Revelation 2.16. Repent. 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 Confession. Contrition. Change. After Jesus takes time illustrating, here's some pivotal things that are problematic in the city of satan here are some things that are are troublesome they can hinder you they could knock you down they could hold you back after designating those what did jesus say to do he said just repent just confess that you messed up and 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 be contrite that you are guilty and then determined to change you see after we enter into the kingdom of god we spend the rest Of our lives becoming more like him and and pursuing him the perfect one but it's a pursuit we never realize until he takes us with him into heaven someday until then our perfection is an ongoing process and you need to hear me today that being the case repentance is a disciples friend repentance is a disciple's friend oh I don't want to repent I'm afraid to admit I did wrong why God isn't surprised he knows anyway repentance is a disciple's friend I'm afraid people are going to find out and they're going to judge me if they do they're not listening to Jesus he says judge not condemn not hear me today repentance is a disciple's friend within a point of weakness I made him a I need to immediately talk to the Lord and say, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to do something different. Repentance is our go-to practice. Confess the error. Surrender it to the blood of Jesus Christ and turn away from that mistake. Successful disciples repent. Repent. And here's the conclusion of the matter here. In Jesus' words, John's recording. For those who hold on, for those who overcome Balaam's false doctrine, for those who readily repent, Jesus leaves us with some wonderful, wonderful hope. And this hope in Revelation 2.17, the next verse, you know what it causes me to realize? Jesus knew there would be success for disciples in Pergamos. If he thought we couldn't do it, or his power wouldn't work, or his word would fail, he'd have pulled us out. But since he knew his authority and his power, and he knew there would be disciples who, who heard and followed and responded and succeeded, he said, let me tell you what is waiting for you when you overcome. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Another translation says food stored in heaven. Food that we're not aware of yet. Food that's not ordinary earthly sustenance. Strength that doesn't come from the ordinary but is extraordinary. If you'll hold on, if you'll repent, if you'll just continue to ignore Balaam's lies, there is strength, there is encouragement, there is power that is from heaven above, and it is promised for those who overcome. And then he says this, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Every adult today when you came in the house should have received a, a white stone. Here's what that means. In the times of the Romans and the Greeks, when a person was brought to trial and accused and faced a jury, a judge, If found guilty of charges, you were given a black stone. But if acquitted and set free, you're given a white stone. If charges won't be held against you, and I'm going to embrace you into my freedom and glory, Jesus said, if you'll overcome, I got a white stone for you. And then he says something interesting. And on that stone will be a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. You know, even for people who who overshare on social media. No one really knows the power of God's victory in my life, like I do. I shared a little bit today about Tom's testimony, but none of us, not even the sweet wife and household know what that white stone really means to Tom. I shared a little bit of Jackie's testimony today. And even if she wrote it all down in detail of every thankfulness, it would not fully communicate what's in her heart and spirit of what God's acquittal really means. That's why only the recipient knows the name why'd you hand out these white stones today pastor because I hope there'll be something in us hangs on to that and says Lord I want one of these Lord, I want one of these. I'm looking forward to the day, Lord, when you see me as an overcomer. Not perfect, but repentant. (laughs) An overcomer. I wonder today in this house, anybody just want to grab that stone and begin to pray however you feel comfortable and say, Lord, you know what? I I want one of these. I'm looking forward to the day. I want to have in my hand I want to have received from you Lord the fullness of your victory and your acquittal in my life Lord it's my desire and it's my goal I want to have that stone Lord I want to have that I want to have the full appreciation and understanding of everything you've done for me Lord I wanna live knowing oh God you have that plan for me you have that in store for me it is your intention your desire and your goal to place that white stone in my hand and I want to be a recipient Lord of what you have for me I want a taste of that manna I want to be strengthened by that manna but I want to have that significant Lord notification of freedom and deliverance that even though I was going through some tough situations even though I was in some challenging circumstance even though there were times I was physically threatened because I held on you promised and Lord I want to receive the fullness of your promise. Can you say in Jesus, name. in Jesus' name? Preacher, are you saying that we live in Satan's city? No, I'm not. Do I see some parallels? Oh, yeah. But it's not my designation that I live in Satan City. That's for Jesus to discern. What I am saying is this. If we are, it's no excuse for failure. What I'm saying is if it's true, wherever we are, disciples around the world thinking, man, it's so bad, it's so tough, it's so hard, it's so evil, things are so rampant. I'm saying this. Success is still possible and available even expected Jesus said to him who overcomes got some hidden manna I got a stone for you I want everybody to go home today knowing I can do this I can do this but you don't know my past preacher I I probably don't know all the details only you are gonna know the name and still there is success for everyone who was surrendered to Jesus Christ. Amen You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of the series or join us online at in the Holy